And with a short sitting, taking a little time to arrive and check in with how things are now. So however things are, if you're noticing that the body is more revved up, if there's more going on in the mind, this isn't a problem. The practice stays the same. Conditions are different. They'll change. Can we just bring the same quality of mindfulness, awareness, non-judgmental attention to noticing how things are now?
If you'd like to stand and have a little seventh inning stretch, feel free to do that. So we thank you for your many, many submissions to the question basket. (laughs) It's good, it's good to have questions. And and you guys put in uh, many very thoughtful, really relevant questions, so we appreciate that. Um, But obviously it's too many for us to address each one individually in the time we have here. Uh, So what we've done is we've gone through them and tried to kind of sort them thematically and and pick up on what are the, the major themes emerging out of those questions. We'll try to speak to those some now in the time that we have and still give you enough time for a break before the closing information at four. So if we don't get to your particular question or the the specific way that you asked it, please uh, understand that we have some limitations. Um, We may address a few more questions this evening, maybe some tomorrow morning. So uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to cover in some way uh, everything that's of concern to you. And just as an opening gambit, I want to mention um, for those of you that haven't been here before, tomorrow morning after the closing of the retreat, the welcome room here off of the hallway will magically transform into a resource room. And in there is a very carefully vetted selection of Dharma books you know, that we think are the, the best ones. Um, there'll also be uh, resources for different centers around the country, internationally, different practice opportunities. Uh, Mark's going to p- be putting out Qigong resources that you can uh, tap into after you leave. Uh, and also the, the kitchen here as part of their tremendous metta and caring for us now make available their recipe books. So anybody that would like to take home recipes, you're welcome to do that. Um, So all of that kind of information will be available tomorrow after the closing of the retreat. So I wanted to to, um, open by addressing a set of questions that um, we're basically asking about uh, or, or referring to how we fit in what we're doing here in retreat to to the larger goal of um, self-healing, spiritual uh, development, kind of the larger path of our lives. So as we've been saying, we do come here to do this very particular specific kind of work. Uh, It's not going to look like this out in the outside world. And as modern Westerners, we have this tremendous blessing of having a lot of different healing modalities. And, uh, to support us, available to us these days. You know, all sorts of different kinds of therapy, you know, also this practice, spiritual practice, a wealth of pharmaceuticals, which at times in, in, our, pra- in our lives and in our practice can really be supportive. And uh, our view is that um, it's really um, most supportive not to have a very narrow view of the path that we're walking. So to not, to not limit ourselves, not to rule out other types of ways of working with suffering that might be of use in our lives. So just as an example, it's a very, very common experience that we come to a retreat like this and a door does open and maybe we realize there's some deep 
you know, there's a deep psychological wound, something from our past that we haven't resolved yet, or maybe we didn't even realize was there, or something that's been going on in our lives that we really does we realize realize really does need more attention on the relative level, just on the ordinary relational level or on the emotional psychological level. So then we might, you know, seek out a little psychotherapeutic support and work it from that angle for a while. Still doing our practice. It's not an either or, but there's you know, it can, it can only help the more different ways that we approach suffering in our lives. Uh, so we want to uh, integrate, you know, what we've learned here, this way of approaching suffering with, with other ways of approaching suffering that are also really supportive and helpful that are, that are out there and available to us now. We might as well take advantage of them. And that can be, you know, a, a long process. It can be a little complicated to suss out well, what really is most needed right now? What would be most helpful? Um, that's part of the, the messiness of the ongoing process of trying to navigate our way through life. Um, so coming out of retreat here, um, as we integrate what came out of this experience, we can evaluate where am I at right now? How do I want to work my spiritual practice? How do I want to work my psychological understanding, emotional development? And all of that ultimately is part of the same path as we move towards greater understanding and less suffering. So we'll hand it over to Mark. So we'll probably just rotate through. We, um, as we looked at the notes, as uh, Deborah said, we divided into different categories. So we'll kind of go back and forth between the three of us And uh, one grouping was about uh, supporting practice in the outside world, finding a teacher, community. So there's two questions. Um, It's important to be, is it important to be a member of a formal sangha or formal practice community? Is it important to find an individual teacher to help guide practice? And... Another one asks, what happens if there's no nearby sangha or a nearby teacher? Another person related question about integrating different spiritual practices and, um, yeah, because it's a complicated world these days. It's with the information, the internet, basically all of the wisdom teachings, not just in the Buddhist, from the Buddhist tradition, but from all different traditions or a click away, a couple clicks away. So it's actually can be quite confusing. So it sounds like, and it makes sense that some people maybe are in a more isolated place where there doesn't seem, besides what's online, doesn't seem to be much support. Maybe others are confused by how much the variety of possibilities out there, even within the insight meditation world, it can be quite diverse and uh, it can be hard to navigate. And who knows, if it seems like the particular time and place that we're all in, it might be unique, um, both in the sense of the way information is shared now and the relative affluence of some of you to have time to do a retreat, to have the resources, to have a home practice. It's sort of an unusual situation. And I think the way that's been helpful for me, you know, like it or not, 
we and and eventually we'd all end up here anyway regardless of the time and place you discovered your practice you know we'd have to become independent or self-reliant in the practice but maybe these days given the conditions that self-reliance and independence needs to come a little sooner than later and because one way, uh, one way or another we have to choose to go to this retreat or to pick up that book or to sit down and do this practice, direct my attention in this way. You have to make some choices. And which uh, Deborah already mentioned this, the, one of the ways that can help you navigate this world is to notice when you have a fixed view. You know, whenever, because it's sort of a convenient out to pretend that this is the right way when the truth is we don't really know completely. And when we have that sense of humility and then we go to a particular retreat, read a particular book, practice in a particular way, if we're honest enough to acknowledge that we're not 100% sure, then we're gonna pay attention and look at cause and effect, basically. So when I practice in this way, when I study with this person, when I use this approach, what, as best I can read, cause and effect, what could set emotion? What kind of mind and heart, what kind of life seems to be reinforced, set emotion, strengthened? Is that the kind of heart I want to inhabit or live through? That mind, that view, that, is that, does it feel right? Is it in the direction of release? Or is it in the direction of greater complication, greater tension, greater reactivity, more greed, anger, more greed, hatred, and delusion? So I'm not saying this is easy to navigate this diverse world of teachers and practices, even within the insight meditation community, let alone all the many other practices, complementary practices, altogether different practices. I don't think it is easy. But understanding the predicament is helpful. And uh, realizing that there's always, at different times, when the way we're practicing doesn't seem to be working, it's appropriate to take some time to reflect. Is it actually not working, or is it just that some difficult experience is arising, and I don't like the difficult experience? Because... We can't evaluate our practice based on the pleasantness or unpleasantness always. I mean, it's one piece of information, but it's not the only piece. We have to really have a sense of what the mind is learning, what kind of insight, understanding is developing in the mind, and whether that understanding is in the direction of the letting go of attachment, letting go of grasping, struggling, or whether it's building up complication, struggle, reactivity, division in the mind. And then just more specifically about these questions about a teacher, you know, uh, it is nice, you know, if we have, of course, spiritual friends who are as deep into the practice as we are, and, you know, preferably someone who is fully and completely (laughs) enlightened. (laughs) Take my email, let me know. 
<laughs> but don't tell anybody else. <laughs> it is really helpful to have spiritual friends. I mean, I think we can all say that definitively. To have other people that understand, to whatever degree, this, because it's countercultural to a large degree, this interest, you know, seeing the limitations of distraction, of consumerism, of many of the things that we would otherwise be filling our life with, and understanding this possibility of transforming the heart, purifying the heart, and being able to live and engage this world with a lot more wisdom and compassion and really you know, live a life that is free and beautiful and functional in terms of making the world a better place. So it helps to have friends and community. It really makes the practice easier and it normalizes the parts of the path that are challenging. And like I said before, when I, you know, it's not always pleasant, but that doesn't mean it isn't good practice. So when we're going through a difficult stretch, it's really useful to have other people around to normalize. Yeah, sometimes it's like this. Sometimes when we practice, it feels and looks like this. Because otherwise we might think we're doing something wrong and have a lot of doubt. And that's often the role of the teacher. I mean, in this tradition, it's not so much about having a relationship with one person. And I think there are a lot of good reasons to cultivate relationships with many people. And some of those people you may never meet with directly, but you just find their voice through their Dharma talks that are online, or maybe they're an author and have written a couple Dharma books or have some articles, or you just find them useful. And it's like good medicine for where you are in your practice. And then it may change, or you might have a handful of people. And when circumstances arise and it feels appropriate, to ask to meet with, to stay connected with a particular teacher, then be fearless and ask because teachers, you know, their practice is to know how to take care of themselves and to find balance in their own lives. And if for some reason they're unable to meet with you or, you know, can only support you in a, to a limited degree, they'll find a way to communicate that with you. So it doesn't hurt to ask, but... Uh, we have to be, you know, willing to adapt and adjust. And to remember we're in a really fortunate situation because there is so much uh, out there. And many of you know dharmaseed.org. It's a fantastic resource, not just because the, the teachers, you know, all of our talks are there. People give talks at, uh, at uh, Spirit Rock and IMS and many of the other affiliated centers but you can search. <laughs> so you can, if something's coming up in your practice, you can find the word that somewhat is close to what's coming up and then hear a couple different voices, listen to a couple talks on that subject. That can be really useful because one person may flesh out part of the what's going on for you in your practice and then another person will give another angle and then your own experience will be a third angle and then pretty much, or pretty soon rather, you'll have some perspective. And then you do more practice and you have even more perspective. And then maybe you hear another voice. And in that way, we find our way. And get on our retreats when we can, just like the three of us up here do our practice every year. We just have to keep finding the time to retreat, to do our daily practice.
Tara, do you want to go next? Or? So I'm going to address some kind of, most of the questions I'm going to address are kind of about home practice or taking the practice home. So one of the questions is, can you talk about creating a home practice of both metta and insight meditation, and when, how to know when it is skillful, helpful to do one versus the other? Can they be done in the same sitting? So there's kind of two parts to this question. Um, how to create a practice with both insight meditation and metta, and um, whether they can be done in the same sitting is kind of one of them. So um, really it's, um, sorry, that was really loud. Really it's great to be creative. Um, They can be done in the same sitting just to take the kind of easiest most objective questions first. You can sit down, and I I know quite a few people who do about maybe 10 minutes of metta and then do a period of insight insight meditation, and there are timers that can kind of help you do that, the insight meditation timer app and things like that, which have interval interval bells that are helpful. Um, I do think it's important to know that there's the, the difference, some of the fundamental differences between metta practice and insight meditation, um, it's usually not great to just kind of mix them up and kind of have a sitting where you're like, oh, well, maybe I'll do metta for a couple minutes and then I'll do insight meditation and I'll go back and forth. Um, metta really uses the conceptual mind to cultivate certain the wholesome mental state of loving kindness. So we're actually kind of harnessing the power and the usefulness of the conceptual mind by using the phrases or using or purposefully dropping in images um, so we're, we're really working in a way at wise effort, which is part of the Noble Eightfold Path to cultivate that uh, loving kindness by th- using this conceptual mind. And insight meditation instead kind of drops us out of the conceptual mind to notice the bare experience as it's happening moment to moment. So they're kind of using different functions of the mind, um, both transformative in different ways. So that's kind of why I would personally recommend not kind of mixing them up. But some people do find it really supportive to do sort of loving kindness, to get them in a mind frame that's really open to and feeling kind of more safe for doing the insight meditation. And I think it's kind of a good way for some people to integrate, really make sure that they have both the practices going in their life. Um, You can also just be you know, really creative in, in doing what some people call stealth metta. <laughs> um, you can integrate the metta practice in a lot of different ways, also the insight meditation, but you can do kind of metta practice while you're just walking around during some kind of daily activity. If you, if you can't find a time to do like a sitting bit of formal practice, um, you know, as you're on the bus or you're, you're going somewhere in your daily life, you can routinely just kind of wish, may you be well to the people or the beings, the animals um, around you. May you be at ease and just dropping in loving kindness. Um, and that can be a really great way to just, you don't have to create an extra time for the practice. You can just really integrate it. Um, 
And you can, you know, you can drop in little times of insight meditation when you're at work and things like that. So, so you can be creative with the practice. Sometimes people just want to do, you know, they just want to do metta for the self. That's perfectly fine. Uh, and, um, but sometimes they really want to just do metta for others and they want to do it creatively during the day as opposed to formal sittings. Um, so the other kind of part of the question was how to discern when it's skillful to do one or the other. And I think literally, you know, we're just listening to the heart and making that decision. Um, noticing, you know, generally metta is a, is an antidote to aversive states of mind. So if we're feeling that there's, kind of a lot of aversion or we want we're at a point in our practice where we we just the heart is moved to kind of work on aversion or um, the heart is moved to open to more loving kindness Uh, that's a kind of a good time to bring loving kindness into the practice and the other thing final thing I want to say is that you know both the practices are really metta is sometimes maybe thought of as a lesser practice, but it's really not. It's tremendously important to cultivate this, this love. Um, it's, it's just tremendously important. And so many people take a year and just do metta practice or even longer, or maybe that's their, their whole practice. Um, so just kind of don't necessarily think of it as lesser. Personally, I did metta and insight meditation for both for probably 13 years. I kind of never not did not do the metta. There was pretty much no way I could do the insight meditation without doing metta also. So just to say that as an example. Um, there's a question here. Could you give some personal examples about how having a moment of awareness positively inter- influenced your interaction with a situation or person? So there were a couple of questions about like, bringing the practice to work and, and other and relationships. So I'm going to just give a couple of examples. I think there are just many where there's been a, some kind of transformational effect. Um, so uh, just to give a work example. Um, so in my day job, which is my whole job, <laughs> um, I'm a, a cr- criminal defense appellate attorney. So um, there's a lot of stress in my work and has been for many years. And um just to kind of quickly go through this, uh, you know, one of those areas of stressors is getting judged by judges. And um, so we would routinely get opinions uh, that would just slash us. Um, And uh, so it could be really, really painful. And this was not just my experience. I know that with my colleagues too. And I practiced with it over the years, the really painful emotions that would come up with getting these opinions. And um, over time, I was able to... uh, kind of, I remember getting one opinion and I was in that state of um, being really angry, feeling really hurt by this, <laughs> these judges. And, um, and I just saw through, um, you know, this isn't sort of one moment of awareness that transformed things for me, but it was like many moments. And then finally a moment where I saw the pain that uh, this was causing me to really um, take personally the, uh, the statements, you know, whatever the judges had said. And it really kind of opened up. And from then on, I was able to have a lot less, um, a lot less stress around getting the judges' opinions. Um, and I don't want to talk for too long. Um, I have a brief kind of relationship um, comment about, you know, how it transformed one of my relationships. So I'll try to say that quickly. But 
Um, this is many years ago. I had my relationship with my best friend was, you know, she was my best friend, so it was a good relationship, but it felt kind of really complicated. And I remember one time just being mindful of um, how I was interacting with her. And uh, I noticed that, you know, I really wanted to be close with her. She was my best friend. I noticed this wanting mind. And then I noticed that what I was doing was kind of a habitual thing that I did, which was tease her a bit. And, um, and that it was actually going to cause the opposite. It was more likely to, <laughs> to make us less close. And so it was a really good moment because um, there I just noticed how, you know, I wanted to be close with her and it was just a, it was a really wholesome, it was in, a kind of a wholesome wanting, but you know, there was the pain of the wanting and, um, and then just noticed that, per, that kind of interaction. And um, I was able then to just be with that particular emotion and not act on it in a way that wasn't particularly helpful to our relationship. And it, our relationship got much better. So those are a couple of examples. And um, I had some other questions, but I think they're probably, I, th I actually think Mark addressed some of the like cell phone questions or maybe not. Okay, I'll just read these quickly. What thoughts, tips do you have on mindfully reintegrating yourselves, ourselves back into our world of cell phones, emails, relationships, etc. tomorrow after the silence? <laughs> When re-entering, how do we best make a gentle transition? Do we avoid inquisitive and unsupportive beings? Do we try to stick to our yogi schedule, wake up at five, meditate? <laughs> I'm scared to leave this safe, kind, and loving environment. Okay, so um, I think one of the questions kind of answered, answered itself in a kind of a beautiful way. How do we best make a gentle transition? So I think the general advice would be, you know, be quite gentle. You're going to be more sensitive. Um, and uh, yeah, you're going to be a, a lot more sensitive and things will perhaps be quite stimulating. Um, I would not suggest trying to rigorously stick to the yogi schedule, <laughs> um, but you might find yourself having an intention that you follow through to wake up a little bit earlier and meditate and that that might be a really great thing to follow through with. Um, and it's, as Mark said, it's really great to cultivate um, Kalyanamata spiritual friendships. So, um, and sometimes we do find that as our, our, our practice proceeds, we kind of avoid more of the relationships that don't seem as, as supportive. Um, so you just, you, you know, use, use real discernment with that. Um, and I just have one little piece of advice about cell phones, which is actually comes from Anushka Fernanda Pole. I think she does day longs on interacting with technology and she suggests just, just, you know, try to pick up the phone and not do anything with it as a kind of a practice every once in a while. Just, just hold it. <laughs> Maybe be with all the emotions that are like, you know, from, and then maybe set it down. It's just dropping them that practice might be useful. Emails, um, maybe take them slow. Don't answer all of the ones from the last week. Okay, that's, those are tips. I think people might have other tips. There are also a number of questions around thinking and skillful use of thinking outside of retreat. Um, uh, the observation was made that we come in on here on retreat and we give you this very specific instruction not to engage with thinking, just know it is thinking, what is it in the present moment, and should we just keep doing that after we leave retreat? <laughs> 
And obviously the answer is no. We have to go back out into the world and do our jobs and relate to the people in our lives and, and all of that kind of stuff that requires thinking. And having a lucid mind that's able to think clearly about things is a great asset. Again, this is a really helpful function of the mind. But what can happen here on retreat is that we, uh, that we do transform our relationship to that thinking process. So part of what we're practicing here on retreat is knowing things in a different way than through thinking. Because mostly that's where we get stuck as we grow up and we become adults. More and more we um, tend to fall into this mode of relating to understanding life and what we're doing uh, and everything really through the intellect, through intellectual understanding, conceptual understanding, which is one way of knowing things that can give us a lot of useful information, be very helpful. But hopefully what we've been seeing here during, during this retreat over the course of our mindfulness practice is that there's a whole other level of knowing things, of knowing what's going on. This is the level of what we, what we often call investigation here. The Pali word is Dhamma Vichaya. So it's not really investigation in, it doesn't really have the same connotation as that word usually has in English, but it's that direct knowing that I was speaking about last night knowing directly in the body, in the mind, what's happening, what's going on right now. The more we learn to tap into that through our meditation, the more tuned in, more plugged in we become to that way of knowing, the more accessible that is to us. That gives us a whole nother set of really useful information about what's happening. So as we go back out into the world and we're engaging again with thinking and the intellectual understanding of what's happening, there's this other level of understanding that can then inform. You know, we're not limited to just the intellectual understanding. We have a deeper understanding. We have a more immediate, direct understanding. So an example I might give of that is that um, recently I had the uh, opportunity, teaching opportunity of being bawled out by somebody that I had offended. You know, unknowingly, as often happens, I had just been mindless, I had been careless, and I had done something that had, that had caused somebody else harm. I had offended somebody else. And they were not hesitant to give me an earful about it. <laughs> so, you know, I, I was taken a bit aback at first. It was just a bit of a shock because I hadn't realized uh, the, the mistake I'd made. But so it was just as I was sitting there, or standing there in this case, and, and listening to this very elaborate, very passionate explanation of, of what I had done wrong, um, there were lots of thoughts arising in the mind. You know, every time this person would say something, the mind would chime in, but, you know, you and, you know, <laughs> you know like that, that self-righteous justifying mind was just like ready to jump on every single thing that this person said. But I also had, you know, in the midst of that, a little bit of mindfulness that was giving me this feedback loop of what was going on in my own heart. You know, seeing the reactivity, seeing the aversion, seeing the wanting to, to you know, defend myself and not be that person that they were making me out to be. You know? So seeing this constant stream of reactivity. And because of the practice, now it's a little easier for me to recognize that, to tune into that, to receive that information, and to feel the squeeze on the heart. You know, so out of retreat, I don't have that same subtle level of you know, being able to identify every single moment clearly of what the hindrance is, what the, what the you know, unwholesome mental state is, but I can feel really in the body because I've seen it so many times. There's that squeeze on the heart and that gives me the red flag. Okay, you are in dangerous territory. 
You've wandered into the territory of greed, hatred, and delusion. So be very careful how you respond. So every time one of those, you know, self-righteous, justifying, aversive thoughts would come up, you know, the mouth would open, you know, and then there'd be a moment of mindfulness of what the other information coming in about that was, and the mouth would close. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't that that was a wonderful experience, being balled out. It's not, you know, it was not pleasant. And it's not even really that necessarily I feel like I handled it as great as I could have, or, you know, it, it was messy, as these things tend to be. But in reflecting on that, I was able to practice some self-restraint. That really what was called for in that moment was just to hear that person out. You know, even though they were also speaking from a place of greed, hatred, and delusion, I needed to hear what they were saying. I needed to to get that information. So this this practice and this other level of of information about what was going on enabled me to be able to take that in. Whereas if I had just been relating to it on an intellectual level, just listening to all my thoughts and believing all of my thoughts and giving voice to all of my thoughts, you know, that conversation could have turned out very badly. So there's this way in which, yes, we continue to navigate the world, we have many thoughts about it, but we have more information, more understanding about where are those thoughts coming from, where are they leading to if we act them on, act on them, and where do we want to be coming from? Where is the place that we want uh, to be relating to the world from through our thoughts? Might be a short in this, is that, can you hear me now? Okay. Yeah, Deborah's comments on investigation flow nicely into, and she already talked uh, quite a bit about working with greed, hatred and delusion, or the defilements, or the conditioned mind. And there were a number of questions um, that fell into these three categories. And um, boy, I mean, it's really the, in in some ways, so much of our practice is understanding uh, on the one hand that we don't need to be afraid of the hindrances, afraid of the greed in the mind, the craving, the hatred, the aversion, the impatience, the desire for distraction and denial and We don't want to be afraid, we don't want to be judgmental, but there's a very appropriate place for this concern. Like we notice the mind, you know, one of the things, especially on retreat, we notice the mind can be overwhelmed, often is overwhelmed with one flavor of reactivity, you know, whether it's the flavor of aversion, pushing things away, or the flavor of desire, grasping, holding, wanting, the flavor of delusion, denial, distraction, pretending we know when we actually don't know for sure. That's a nice definition actually of delusion is thinking we know. Isn't that good? What is delusion? It's thinking we know, which is a lot of the time we think we know. And so then the mind's not open, it's actually not being aware, mindful, mindfully aware, because the mind instead is resting in the sense that I know, this is what I know, so some idea. And the Buddha said once something like, no matter how we conceive it, it will always be other than that. So 
we can't rest in any conception, any idea. We can only, you know, practice, train the mind to be aware. Another thing to say about all three, greed, hatred, delusion, these ways our mind reacts, that as we investigate, as we get interested, uh, well, first maybe I'll say, just to be able to investigate, we need, like Deborah mentioned, we need to be able to restrain, to refrain ourselves from immediately acting on the impulses that you know, are getting triggered. Because there's no way to be aware if the mind takes, you know, at the crossroads where something's coming up, it immediately, because of not understanding, not seeing what's happening, acts out the impulse and says something back or hits back or takes something that isn't theirs to take, isn't ours to take. Then we're so involved in the, you know, whatever that reaction is, the mind, it's less likely to be able to be aware. So initially in these storms, we need to create the conditions where the mind can be reflectively aware. Oh, this is what's arising and it feels like this, right? We have to, it's really important, especially with the defilements, that we understand the underlying feeling because it's often the unpleasantness of aversion, the unpleasantness of wanting something that drives the activity of desiring, hating, wanting to get rid of. But when we're willing to honestly acknowledge there is this feeling, it feels like this now, it's just this feeling being known. When we honestly acknowledge that, it undercuts the need for a lot of the proliferation and reactivity when we acknowledge, so this is what it feels like to be needy, to want, to be lonely, to be angry. And then that stabilizes the awareness even more, right? So that the the understanding can deepen. And we begin to see that it isn't so much that there's aversion in the mind or greed in the mind, it's that the mind is identified with that activity we call greed or aversion, or delusion. It feels, seems personal. And that's, that's what compels the reaction, is because it feels personally, it feels like a personal thing, I'm angry, right? Or the tendency of the mind is to organize it and frame it as this idea that I'm angry, if I get this, I'll be happy, I don't understand, this isn't fair or whatever it is, it really, uh, so the, the interesting question is, what is that experience that we would call aversion or greed, self-righteousness, um, resignation, giving up? You know, there's so many expressions of these basic unwholesome roots of greed, anger, and delusion. Really, all of the causes for suffering in our hearts and in our world that's the display of greed, anger, and delusion. And uh, what are those experiences without the mind mistakenly falling into the idea, this is me, this is mine, this is who I am, this is what's happening to me, or this is who you are, 
this is what's happening to you. But instead observe, feel, know it as a movement of nature, causes and conditions. And of course, this is the whole point of retreat. I mean, obviously not in every moment, but in some moments there's enough safety, enough stability of awareness, enough restraint here that we can really see greed, see aversion arise in our heart. And we see it, we feel it, we know it's a, you know, this content, this feeling being known. So in that sense, we can investigate it and we can see the karma, like when the mind starts to take the anger personally, then immediately direct correlation, there's a squeeze, that squeeze in the heart, the heart gets crunched. And what is anger when the mind isn't taking it personally? You know, we'd still consider it an unwholesome movement but the non-attachment to the anger is wholesome. So we might have fear moving, we might have greed moving, lust moving, we might have irritation or impatience moving, expectations, judgments moving, you know, all these different flavors. And that movement is what it is, but the non-attachment, the understanding it clearly and not attaching not resisting, not acting it out. That's really enlivening and even, I think, liberating, you know, in little bits. So this is one of these paradoxical statements we hear teachers say sometimes that, you know, hindrances are either going to knock us down and cause us to get entangled, you know, proliferate in ways that bind up the body and mind, or hindrances can be the ground for freedom, like the cause that the mind understands a little bit more of this possibility of non-attachment, this reality of non-attachment, non-grasping, non-struggling. Because we're looking for a freedom that's not conditioned, which means it can even be there when anger is being triggered or greed is being triggered or delusion is being triggered, you know, confusion, doubt is being triggered. There can be a mind that isn't having a problem with it and is responding not under the influence, but understanding what's there. Oh yeah, this is aversion. You know, this is that tendency to push away. When acted out, it sets emotion this. And then it isn't that we like, formally decide to practice metta and have compassion for ourselves because of the anger. But we just, in being with the feeling that goes with it and letting the anger, the irritation, the fear move, I thought Deborah talked about this in such a practical way, like in the example she gave, where in a way the wisdom, the stability of awareness, to whatever degree it's present, it allows everything that's getting triggered to move in the open space of wisdom. Or you could say the open space of wisdom and compassion that knows enough to just let everything move, to see it in awareness and not have to do anything about it. But this is a big doing, to to refrain from acting it out, to not be confused by it is really 
potent. So maybe I'll leave it there. Do you, you probably have a few more categories? Do you have more to say? There were a lot of questions that came in um, having to do with very as- various aspects of being uh, both a lay person and a yogi. So there's, there's a lot of different aspects to this. Uh, so for example, uh, how do you balance practice with marriage and family? You know, I've got limited time to spend in a retreat or devote to formal practice. Um, how do we uh, handle uh, the fact that there's a huge amount of sense pleasure available to us <laughs> in our lives? How do we navigate all that uh, if we're yogis? Um, how do we relate with partners or people that are close to us that are not yogis and don't necessarily understand what we're doing here? Uh, so things along those lines, um, which it's natural for those to come up, as, as Mark was saying, it's very natural to be a little nervous. Uh, this is actually a wholesome feeling as we start, <laughs> we start to get a sense of just how big this conundrum is. The, this problem of greed, hatred, and delusion, that we start to get some sense of that, it's, it's only natural that, that we're going to feel a little tentative, we're going to feel a little nervous, a little vulnerable about you know, being in the world with all of the myriad challenges that, that it presents and all of the limitations that it presents to us as lay people. I find it reassuring to look back through the suttas, through the traditional teachings, and see just how many uh, really accomplished lay followers the Buddha had people that were actively involved in, in commerce, people that were actively, actively involved in, in the governance of the area, people that were just you know, regular folks living family lives. And there, there are plenty of these examples. So if, if we look at the, the, you know, this traditional body of teachings, there's this very clear message that the circumstances of our lives, however complicated those may be, however many um, responsibilities we may have, uh, you know, however devoted we may be to, to big causes in the world, that the none of this is really an impediment on the path. It just becomes part of our path. <laughs> so whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, if we're in relationship, if, you know, we like to have a nice meal, we like to make love, we like to have a nice glass of wine after dinner, you know, whatever it is, um, this is this, we don't have, need to really worry about these things. These all just become material to the, for the practice. You know, in in my own life, uh, when I first started to get, you know, relatively early on in my practice, I got kind of serious about it. I was young, I was relatively unencumbered, and in my 20s, I, I kind of dropped out <laughs> of, of ordinary society and became a bit of a dharma bum, and just was, you know, traveling from re- retreat to retreat, you know, some here in the United States, some in Asia. Um, and at that time, at that in that stage of my practice, I definitely would have said, yeah, that's what it's all about. You know, that's the real deal. That's the real practice. And, you know, all this time kind of pussyfooting around in ordinary life, you know, they tell us that that counts too, but they're really just, you know, they're just humoring us. (laughs) Um, But then after that period passed and and I, I moved out of that phase and settled down and had children and became very enmeshed in family life where also I have very few opportunities for a lot of formal practice. I came to see that there's a whole, it really is very rich, that that's a whole another mode of practice, that there's all sorts of things to be cultivated and to be learned within that 
framework. It doesn't have to be limiting if we don't box ourselves into some idea that it has to be limiting. And what, what I'm finding at this stage in my life is that what, what defines being a yogi, what defines being on the path is not, not all of these details of the circumstances of our lives or the form that our pra- practice takes at any particular time, but it's, our, again, our relationship to it. You know, so if we're committed to awareness, if it's really a, a core value to pay attention, to be aware of how we're experiencing life, what's arising, what our own experience is, what others' experiences, you know, if, if we're committed to paying attention in whatever circumstances that we're in, whether it's intensive practice like we've been doing here or in the midst of, you know, an argument with my husband, <laughs> that they're equally rich fields for cultivating what needs to be cultivated for greater freedom. And if we also have that commitment to uh, continuous improvement <laughs> in our way of being in the world, this practice of sila, which I think we'll talk more about um, later, you know, if we're really committed to paying attention to our activity, paying attention to where we're coming from, the effect that we're having in the world, what our motivation is, and really trying our best, not necessarily succeeding, <laughs> not being perfect, but if we have this commitment to doing our best over and over and over again, then this is what makes us a yogi. It's that commitment, it's that sincerity to walking this path, which really just consists in, you know, doing as little harm as possible, doing as much good as possible, you know, clearing as much delusion out of the mind as possible. Do good, refrain from harm, and free the mind from suffering, free the mind from ignorance. So as long as we're committed to that, to those values, to those principles, then whatever we do, whatever our life circumstances are, uh, can, can serve in furthering that path. I thought this might be a good time to uh, make a pitch for right speech, just because it looks like it's not, not going to come up anywhere else in the retreat. We didn't get to this in a Dharma talk, but... You know, so especially in, in, in speaking with those that might be close to us that aren't on this path, which can be, you know, this can be a challenging area in our lives if we have, you know, especially like a partner or a close friend or family member um, that doesn't quite understand what we're doing here. Um, it is true that um, as we walk, walk along this path, as we grow in understanding, then, then those relationships that are very close to us may evolve. They may change in certain ways. Uh, or it may be, as Mark was saying, that uh, there are new relationships that come into our lives, that it becomes important to us to have Dharma friends that we can speak to about this experience. And those may not be the people that we're used to confiding in. So I, I found it helpful to remember the principles of, of right speech, um, that we don't necessarily need to share everything <laughs> that goes on in our spiritual practice with everyone that's in our lives. It's just not always appropriate. So we've been chanting this, this precept uh, to, be, uh, to engage in right speech. And that's said to have um, five different aspects. So the most obvious one is truthfulness. So this is the, the basic foundation for all right speech, is, is telling it as we know it, expressing, expressing what we know to the extent that we know it. But there's another aspect is the, of right speech, is that, which is that it should be timely. So to every season, you know, there's a time. So there's a time to have discussions with people about our path, whether, you know, to the extent that they understand it. It's not, 
you know, in the time necessarily that we just feel like we need to get it off our chests. There's a time when people are receptive to hearing more or less about what we're doing, about what's happening in our spiritual life. Right speech is also uh, beneficial. So we have to think a little bit about, you know, if I share, you know, this thing uh, that I'm wanting to express, is, is that actually going to be a benefit to the person? Do they really need, is there a need to know? You know, or is that just going to burden them or confuse them? You know, what's, what's it really going to be helpful to share? There's also the dimension of motivation. So in anything that we do, we always want to be checking in with motivation for, for our speech, for our action. Where is this coming from? And as, as much as possible to, um, to try to choose, choose our moments when we feel grounded, when we feel settled, when we feel clear, that's, that's a, a much better time to try to communicate our path or our experience to someone than when, you know, we're in a big storm of something, you know, or feeling like we really need to be heard, we really need to be validated, we really need to be supported. You know, that doesn't tend to be the best place to share our practice with people from. And then finally, we want to be careful about... Um, how we share things. So, so uh, right speech is not just all of these, these other things, but it should be as skillful as possible. You know, again, keeping in mind that we're imperfect and that, that it's going to be hard to get it exactly right. But as much as possible, we want to, you know, measure, you know, how, how we say things, that we say them in a way that can really be heard. We say them in a way that's not going to f- offend. We say them in a way, again, that's going to be f- beneficial. So these, these teachings on right speech just in and of themselves can be a whole practice, a huge practice, and not just for our own benefit on the path, but for those around us, the practice of right speech, uh, especially right now. Especially right now is one that if, if we just all go out of here and pay more attention to this, we'll have a huge impact in the world. You know, think about the hundred of us really paying attention to wise speech in the world. Um, it's also said that um, there's a couple of other facets to right speech. So, um, so one is that, uh, so a form of wrong speech is that not knowing, we say, I know. So when we don't really know something, as Mark was just saying, if we're not really clear about something, we don't give in to that, you know, kind of automatic desire to make out like we do. You know, not to, not to uh, pretend that we know more than we do, but to be willing to say, I don't know. Um, just a, kind of a side note, this is one thing that I always look for in a teacher. I always look for a teacher who's willing to say, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good sign. I consider that a good sign. And then the, the flip side of that is that uh, another form of wrong speech is that knowing we say, I don't know. And this is a, an important one these days, I think. You know, it's, it's about not keeping quiet. That when, when we know something to be true, an important truth, that we speak up and we speak out, and we speak that truth. So it's also not right speech to just, you know, stay quiet and not speak our truth as we understand it. We need to, to get that out there, what's true as we know it. So these are some aspects of, of right speech uh, that are always helpful. And the, the truth is that being out there in the world will be presented with all sorts of, of things to tempt us, all sorts of experiences that are available that might be quite pleasant. And it's not that we need to avoid any of that. You know, there's many opportunities for pleasure, for joy in the world. It's okay. <laughs> it's all right. We can indulge in those, enjoy those, enjoy the experiences 
um, that are available to us as lay people in a wholesome way, always with this eye to non-harming. You know, so if we can always be asking ourselves, if I engage in this particular activity that's, that's pleasant, that's enjoyable, uh, will it cause harm? And if it seems like it's basically harmless, it's a relatively benign pleasure, it's not going to be you know, hurting but anybody else by indulging in this, then, then it's fine to do that mindfully. So we, we get out there and uh, we go about our lives and we do the best that we can with this commitment to uh, paying attention and to doing the best that we can. Do you have something else? randomly take I'm having, oh there it goes, yeah there's a little short in this. I'm having a difficult time not viewing defilements as mine, especially when it is frustration and doubt in my practice. The last two sittings I got such a bad headache, I can't seem to bring the right attitude. Help. (laughs) And then at the end with two nice little hearts, metta. I guess that's the answer. (laughs) But the person's note is really important because uh, doubt and frustration, it's a a very seductive um, experience. You know, and uh, I'm sure you've recognized this dance that happens when, you know, we're frustrated it feels so real and so personal because we're generally, by the time the mind is clearly aware that there's doubt or there's frustration, the mind is likely to have been at it for a while, you know, spinning. So it's already, in a sense, entrenched in the body. There's a, uh, a visceral contraction. And then there's this stance where the tightness, energetic tightness in the body stimulates, triggers more of the mental activity, the worrying, the, you know, I really don't know what to do, that's not okay. So the proliferation, and then the mental proliferation reestablishes the contraction in the body, and the contraction in the body re-stimulates the mental activity. And so there's a coherent feedback loop when we're frustrated and doubtful and thinking that everybody else is getting it but me. I remember very distinctly, even you know, 20 years later or whatever it's been, yeah, probably over 20 years, but in what used to be called the Catskills, but now the new reform building, I forget, what is that? Is that Kar- Karuna? Yeah. And, uh, and I was, you know, and I had been at that point practicing for you know, 12, 13 years and uh, deludedly thought I knew some things. <laughs> but I was just feeling a lot of doubt, like what am I doing and why is my mind so wild, you know, and why can't I get this thing under control and have proof that my practice is progressing and 
And I remember lying there in the bed in the middle of the day and just, just overrun by doubt and uh, just letting it move and feeling it. And uh, at some point, not, not sort of establishing an opinion, but just, you know, there, it can be related to a wisdom to surrender. Because there's a chance then to realize it's only as bad as it is right now, right? Whatever, it's not about the story, like Joseph Goldstein has a great line, why are we adding this immutable, horrible self-image, right? Because when we honestly look, feel, and acknowledge that it's like this, then it's just that. It's not worse than that. It's not better than that. It's just that. And this can break that cycle when we're willing to see that whatever it is, it's this moment-to-moment experience. It's not the story that I've been at this for 13 years or whatever it was at the time and, and somehow I've missed it and I'm a fool and I'm not good at it and my mind hurts and I want out, but I'm in the middle of the retreat and, and there's no way out anyway. And I knew enough to know there wasn't a way out. But you can, that's a very compelling story, right? It seems seamless and truthful and big. And to somehow give up trying to answer the questions the mind is asking like why am I? Why do I have so much frustration? And you know, this example the person gives of getting a headache is a common thing. We sort of—it's like a more generalized panic attack, you know, as opposed to a more specific one. It's just like the energy builds, and as we try to address it in a incorrect way, in a way that just feeds it, it just gets more intense until generally there's a crash. And we either get exhausted and fall asleep or if, you know, we get distracted and forget how dismal our life is and <laughs> so interested in what's for dinner or something like that. <laughs> Which is just putting it off, right? Because we haven't learned anything. So we're still vulnerable to falling in that same hole a little bit later. But when we realize this basic dharma move, that whatever is showing up for, it, for us, it's never more than the present moment experience that's being known. And we're already, in a funny way, surviving that. It hasn't killed us. So it's not worse than what's already being experienced. I don't know about you, but that has really helped me in those difficult times, is to realize that as bad as this is, it's just this. It's just this experience that I'm feeling and knowing. It's not more, it's not less. And it doesn't make it go away, it just seems to make it workable, like we can work with this moment. Right? You've, there's a sort of a corollary to this when you have a lot of physical pain when you're sitting. And you know, it's like uh, you get in a groove, there's enough continuity of awareness. Pain is the primary object of awareness and not much proliferation. You're really there with the pain. 
that as soon as the continuity of awareness wavers and you, the mind falls back into the one who has physical pain, it's completely unworkable, right? But as long as you, the mind is relating to the pain with some wisdom and some continuity, it's okay in that moment and then it's okay in the next moment you don't know if it's going to, you're not speculating whether it's going to be okay in the next moment. You just know it's okay in the moment that's there. And then the next moment, you know it's okay in the next moment. But as soon as the mind has a story that, like the story, there's 20 more minutes to the set, then it really feels completely unworkable, right? So this is a, an example, a related example of that. So should we do some walking for the next 20 minutes and use the toilet? And of course, we'll, we're remaining uh, in noble silence at this time, but get some fresh air if you'd like, and we'll come back at four o'clock. And I don't know if someone's scheduled to ring the bell, but maybe, are you? Oh, that would be great, thanks. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.